Please turn with me in your Bibles to Malachi 1. I'd like to lay out a scenario before you this morning for your consideration. I am married. By virtue of the fact that I am married, by virtue of my married status, it is understood that I love my wife. Now, as a husband, I recognize that monetary, physical displays of my affection for my wife are a good thing. It's good for me to monetarily, to physically, to materially display to my wife my love for her. And so, I figure if I want to keep peace in the home, I better go get my wife flowers one day. And so I go and I start looking for flowers. And I know what my wife likes. She, she's, she enjoys, when, if I'm going to go get flowers, she enjoys me getting roses for her. And so I go and I look at the display Numerous displays arrayed with beautiful flowers, nicely cared for and carefully arranged. And I look at the roses, and the first thing I look at is the price tag. I say, huh, well, I've been saving up for some new parts for my computer. I'm kind of a computer geek, and I've been saving up for those new components, and these roses are kind of expensive, and it's going to eat into that fund a little bit. So then I go over to the, you know, the seasonal arrangements which tend to be cheaper because a lot of times they're flowering weeds and such. And so I go to the seasonal arrangements and I say, aha, these prices are more in my liking. I can, I, can, I can still get the flowers. Roses are a bit expensive. I can put that money away. I can get the flowers. I can satisfy my husbandly duty. I can pacify the wife. I can you know, make her know that I love her, all that, all that stuff. And I can keep doing what I want to do with my hard-earned money. Now, that scenario before you, I began that scenario by saying, I love my wife. As I played through the scenario, did it sound very loving? As I played through the scenario, I'm talking about, well, yeah, I'm going to get my wife flowers because if I do that, then she'll have this outward display of affection and it'll be good and I can still get what I like and this is good. I don't, I'm not arguing this morning for anything in my illustration. I'm not trying to say either that it's not a sweet and a beautiful thing to see a loving husband give his wife flowers. I'm not arguing that it is wrong to give a wife inexpensive flowers when money is tight or when the budget calls for it or if those are just the particular flowers that she happens to like. But in the scenario I just stated... I don't think there's anybody in this room that would say, yes, your attitude, your perspective reflects a husband that is showing true love for his wife. Why? What was wrong with that scenario? Well, because even though my actions would be fine if they had been compelled by that love and by that devotion, by a sacrificial love for my wife, rather, these actions seemed somewhat despicable in their motivation that I would buy her flowers to keep the peace that I would buy her flowers to satisfy my husbandly duty or that I would buy her cheaper flowers in order that I might not cut into the fund that I want for my own things see those are pretty improper motivations and so we understand that improper motivations can turn 
what could have been a beautiful display of love into a despicable attempt at manipulating my wife. As we consider that scenario, my motivation to give to my wife should have been my love for her. It should not have been some attempt to manipulate her. The amount I spent on her should have been tempered by reason and financial ability, but should also have reflected a willingness to perhaps forego my own personal fund, my own personal savings for my things in order to bless my wife. If my wife had learned of my motivations, I really don't think she would be impressed with such a gift. I don't even think she would be pleased with such a gift. She would feel as though I was not trying to display my love, but I was trying to fulfill some obligation. And therefore, the effect of the gift would have been greatly minimized, if not even reversed. She may have been quite angry at me for such a shallow attempt on my part. Malachi 1, 6-14 is an account very similar to that illustration in the lives of Israel. The people brought God meager sacrifices, which were second rate, but they were also improperly motivated. And as we look through this passage today, the question we'll ask is this. Do we worship the same way we'll see Israel worship here in this passage? Do we bring, Israel, do we bring God second rate worship? Do we bring God worship that is compelled by improper motivations? See, the difference between the illustration that I gave of my wife and the relationship between God and Israel and, by extension, ourselves and God is that God sees our hearts. My wife might receive those, that holiday arrangement or that seasonal arrangement and be perfectly pleased thinking I went out of my way because I was thinking about her and I missed her and I loved her and I wanted to do something for her and thinking how wonderful that my husband would be willing to spend money on me. And she might never know that in fact I was doing it in order that I might just be able to earn a little pocket change with her so that when I screw up, I can say, well, wait a minute, I bought you flowers. Or so that when something goes wrong, I can have that leverage she didn't know my motivation, and so she might be perfectly pleased. But folks, we cannot, nor could Israel, fool an all-knowing God. Perhaps my wife would never know of my second-rate motivations. God always knows our motivations. And so this morning, as we look into Malachi 1, 6-14, I would like us to see three principles of our worship. Three principles of our worship to God specifically that should cause us to carefully discern how we worship and why we worship. We need to put some thought into this, folks. As we look at scripture, we need to understand that some thought needs to go into the process of worship. How we worship and why we worship. We'll look at these together. Look with me, first of all, at the first point. And, I'm, and, and these points are very stern. This series is somewhat stern. We came out of a series that was uh, somewhat encouraging and edifying. This one is a bit more stern. First point, God hates second place worship. God hates second place worship. Look with me at Malachi 1 beginning in verse 6. A son honoreth his father, and a servant his master. If then I be a father, where is mine honor? And if I be a master, where is my fear? saith the Lord of hosts unto you, O priests, that despise my name. And ye say, Wherein have we despised thy name? 
This is his answer. Ye offer polluted bread upon mine altar, and ye say, Wherein have we polluted thee? In that ye say, The table of the Lord is contemptible. And if ye offer the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And if ye offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? Offer it now unto thy governor. Will he be pleased with thee, or accept thy person? Saith the Lord of hosts. And now I pray you, beseech God that he will be gracious unto you. This hath been by your means. Will he regard your persons, saith the Lord of hosts? As God begins his contention, recall that Malachi is broken up into points of contention. You can see that from the outline that you received uh, a few weeks ago and is in our, we- our monthly newsletter. This is broken up into points of contention. As God begins this particular contention in this section, and he does, as he does so, he does so by drawing a very powerful comparison. God uses two earthly physical analogies to point out the dramatic problem in the way this culture, the culture, the nation of Israel, viewed God. And the first analogy, the first illustration he uses is that of a father. In verse 6 he says, A son honoreth his father. And then he goes on to say, If I be a father, if then I be a father, where is mine honor? The father has, since the beginning of creation, we even talked about this this morning in our Sunday school hour, been a position of honor in the family. The father has customarily and by design is the head of the home. He is the one who is under Christ. He is the head of the wife. He is the leader of the home. As sin roots itself deeper into the fabric of any society, the family unit begins to dissolve and the father loses that place of honor. And yet, with each historical realignment that we've seen throughout history, a realignment with truth also brings a reestablishment of the position of family and particularly the honored position of the father in family and society. And so God calls himself a father. He says this is a position of honor. But notice the second illustration. He says, and a servant, his master. A servant honors his master. The master is a person that has always been looked up to with honor and fear in society. This would be equivalent today to perhaps an employer. Now, the master uh, would also have been one that would have taken slaves at this time or indentured servants, depending on the particular situation. And certainly he saw himself and was regarded in that culture as worthy of honor. In our culture, we know that the employer is the one that pays the bills. The employer is the one that gives us the paycheck. So we honor him because if we don't honor him, he might just give us a pink slip instead of a check one week. So God says, I'm a father. You call me father. I'm a master. You call me master. These two earthly analogies tied directly to Israel's relationship with God. God truly was their father. God called himself their father. They called him their father. God designated himself in such a way. God also called himself their master and they called him their master. Now, as we think about the church age, this age of grace, we recognize that we are as well in this particular relationship with God. That God has called himself our father if you sit in this room today born again. And that God is in fact your master. Again, if you are a born again believer. And so the question God asks Israel is this. If I am truly your father, which he is, if I am truly your master, which he is, where is my honor? 
Where is my fear? If I'm your father, then why don't you honor me? If I'm your master, then why don't you fear me? That's what he's asking Israel. And as we observed last week in last week's divine confrontation about love, Israel met this question with a definitive indication of their spiritual blindness. Their, their response to God's question is this. Wherein have we despised thy name? We recall in scripture that the name meant more than simply the moniker by which a person was called. When a person described someone by their name or um, uh, was honoring their name, it was the entire character of the person. The name of God is not just capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, or Jehovah, or any of those monikers that we would give him. The name of God is everything that he is. His righteousness, his goodness, his justice, his love, his mercy, his long-suffering, that is the name of God. That is why when one is called upon to believe on the name of Jesus Christ to be saved, it is not simply believing that Jesus, J-E-S-U-S, is the name of the one who lived. To believe on Jesus Christ's name is to believe on his person, to believe on his work, to believe on everything that he said, to believe on what he was here to do, to believe on what he said he was. And so God says, where is my honor? Where is my fear? And they say, wherein have we despised thy name? God, you are accusing us of, de of, of despising, of rejecting your very person. Where have we rejected your person? And so just like last week's contention was themed around the interplay between God's love and God's worth, so we observe this week the interplay between God's position and God's worth. Last week we learned that God is worthy to be worshipped in truth, because of the love which he has demonstrated to us. This week we learn that God is worthy to be worshipped in truth. Because of the position which he holds as Lord and Master over us. God then answers their question in verse 7. By stating that which they already knew. Whether they acknowledged it or not. He says, ye offer polluted bread upon mine altar. Now the word bread here is the Hebrew word that is a little bit more generic than simply bread. It's a Hebrew word that means food. It's not the specific word for meat. It's not the specific word for grain. It is simply a word that means food. Most often it is used in regard to grain, but can also be used in reference to meat. We see often in the King James translation words that would associate themselves with grains, particularly the word bread, where we know that it was, they were intending meat. Some of the offerings that were offered upon the altar, they would call them bread offerings when in fact we recognize that those offerings were offerings, meat offerings, were blood sacrifices. And so what we understand here is that at the time of the writing of the King James Version of the Bible, this particular word bread was not necessarily always indicative of a grain. And it very much so was more indicative of the word food. Now this is not a problem we just need to understand the, the context in which this was written. We need to take the time to understand and we need to interpret accordingly. And so here he's saying, you offer polluted food upon mine altar. The context, whenever we come across this word bread in our King James Bible, will most usually give us the direction that we are supposed to interpret that more generalized Hebrew word for food. Now, the specific pollutions 
that God is speaking of here are enumerated in verse 8. They, we see again at the end of verse 7 that they say again, they deny again, they say, wherein have we polluted thee? Wherein have we polluted you? How is it that we've polluted you? And he answers, he says, when you say that the table of the Lord is contemptible. And these are these specifics in verse 8. He says, and if he offer the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And if he offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? They were offering the blind, the lame, and the sick as their offerings unto God. Now God states very clearly that these offerings are contemptible to him. Contemptible. The Levitical Code of God that we find back in uh, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Leviticus not only expected a good sacrifice, but he expected a sacrifice that was, that was without blemish of any kind. God expected a sacrifice that was physically without blemish, that had no problems with the, the, the hair or the fur, that had no broken bones, that had no physical deformities. If a lamb was born and he just happened to be born with three legs, that lamb was immediately disqualified. If a lamb was born and he was marred in some way, his ear was, was tarnished, maybe it was torn a little bit, or he had a, a large scar on his face from the attack of perhaps a wolf, he was immediately disqualified, according to the Levitical law, from sacrifice. He could not be used because there was some blemish on him. If a lamb even had internal problems that were known of, it was not worthy to be offered according to Levitical law on the altar of the Lord. Why? Why would God expect this? Why did God ask this? Why did God command this? Because God is a God who, by nature of who He is, is worthy of the very best that God's people have to offer. God is worthy of the very best lamb in a person's flock. He didn't want them to just choose out a lamb. He wanted them to find the best lamb for him. He said, I am worthy because I am God of the best lamb. God's position demands the respect of God's people to bring the very best of what they have to God. That's what God expected. God then appeals to culture, to Israel's culture, to drive this point home. Notice verse 8. Half the, the second half of the verse. He says, Offer it now unto thy governor. Will he be pleased with thee? Or accept thy person, saith the Lord of hosts? He asks this question to those who have given these sacrifices to Israel. Would you ever dare offer this kind of a sacrifice, this, this lame or this blind or this sickly lamb to a governor? Would you, when you were coming before the ruler of your people... Say, this is the gift I have to bring you and have a lamb that's completely marred and disfigured. A lamb that's sick to the point of death. A lamb that only has three legs. A lamb that's scarred. Would you bring that to your governor? Would they even dare to give their governor second place? If they were choosing between all of their lambs to bring to the ruler of their nation, would they bring to the ruler of their nation the second place lamb? If they were to stand before, at this time, we presume that, that Persia was the ruling, the ruling entity over Israel at the time. We know that from our book study. If 
the king were to come or if they were to go to Babylon and they were to bring gifts for the king of Persia, would they bring him a bunch of scarred animals? A bunch of lame and sick animals? Even more. Would they actually expect any self-respecting governor to accept such a display of dishonor as worthy of his position? Would the king of all Persia look down at those scarred, maimed, and sickly lambs and say, Wow, what honor you give me by bringing me these gifts. What honor you give me by, by giving me these things. He'd be offended, would he not? He'd be offended by such a display. The implicit answer would take two forms. First of all, they'd say, of course, we would never give our governor something like that. But then, no doubt, the Israelites were also thinking, but I would never give such an offering because not only would my governor reject them, but it's quite possible that he would get angry at me. It's even more possible that he would pursue recourse against me. He would see it as dishonor. Not simply even as not bringing honor. He would see it as a public show of dishonor to him. That you would willingly, knowingly, and purposefully give him sick and lame sacrifices. And within that answer lies the problem of men throughout the ages. See, men disconnect God with the true consequences of their actions. Because men don't see God, because we can't see him with our eyes, we fail to take God at his word. And we fail to fear him in our hearts. And so we fail to properly worship him with our lives. That's exactly what Israel did. They see the governor. They know that they have to walk up the hill to the governor's mansion. They know that that governor will be there. And they know that that governor will see their sacrifices. And so they would never bring that governor a maimed or a scarred sacrifice. But see, they've never laid eyes on God. And they fail to have the faith to recognize that God sees their offering for what it is. For some reason, Israel thought that they could manipulate God. They thought they could choose out a second best from the herd, from the flock, give it to God to fulfill their obligation to Him, to, consider, to continue with their covenantal blessings, to continue with the things that they thought they needed to do in order to be in right relationship with God, but their hearts weren't there. Just like the husband who goes to the store and gets the second-hand flowers with a improper motivation of manipulating my wife or trying to earn some sort of brownie points with her so that next time I get in trouble I'm okay I've got leverage is not loving his wife so too Israel God saying you're not loving me you're not loving me when you do this verse 9 makes it clear it gives, his, gives God's final answer he says and now I pray you beseech God that he will be gracious unto you this have been by your means Will he regard your person, saith the Lord of hosts? Will God really regard you? If the governor won't even regard you, if you were to bring such a shoddy sacrifice, will God? Will the God of the universe? Now we need to connect dots from this first point to modern Christian culture, as well as to our church. Now folks, we live in a Christian culture that thrives on giving God second place. 
hiding behind pseudo-pious concepts that God sees the heart in order to justify them not bringing their best to God. It's a Christian culture that will give hours of their day to television and video games and various other forms of amusement, but don't count God as worthy enough to give him time in our day, much less to set aside a day for him. It is a Christian culture that will devote an entire Saturday to college football or devote an entire Saturday to a day at the lake or devote an entire Saturday to movies or a dozen other amusements but wouldn't be interested in attending a church that would ask them for more than an hour or an hour and a half of their time in a week. It's a Christian culture that will come to a dedicated time of worship to God without any regard for how they look, without any preparation of their heart or their mind or their body. But they'll turn around and put a tie on on Monday morning to go sit behind a desk. Or they'll put a tie on on a Saturday night to go out with their girlfriend, wife, or fiancé. Now, this morning I'm not preaching clothing. I'm not preaching standards. If you've been here in our, morning, in our Sunday school services, you know where we stand on that. You know the principles upon which we stand. You know why we do what we do. We have specific reasons why we do what we do and why we ask what we ask. But that's not what I'm trying to get at this morning. What I am trying to get at is your heart. What motivates you to do what you do? See, we are in a Christian culture that hears statements like the ones I just made. And so many more like it, and they roll their eyes and they say, Look, Pastor, God sees my heart. You're just trying to impose your legalistic religion upon me. And they don't see that what they're really doing is giving God second best. When they're confronted or convicted, all they say in their blindness is, God, wherein have we polluted thee? Over the past four weeks, I have been confronted with numerous areas of my life where I've been giving God second best. And don't think that... that this is something that doesn't touch your pastor because it does. There's no one in this room that can't shore up some areas where they've been giving God second best. I've been giving God second best in my time with my family around the word of God. We had to shore that up. We had to make sure that we gave God a premium part of our day where our family looked into the word of God because we were trying to give him the second best part of our day. We were trying to give him a part of our day where we were tired and we couldn't focus and we were more interested in getting the scriptures done with than we were with learning from the scriptures. I had to shore that up because I was giving God second best. There were numerous other areas in my life where I found I was giving God second best. So I'm not trying to impose some legalistic standard upon you this morning. And I'm not trying to impose that those of us this morning that are in ties or in suit coats, or in skirts down to our toenails, or any more godly, or doing any better in our hearts than anyone else. Please don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that. What I'm asking us to do is search our hearts. Because God sees your heart. Because God knows if you are giving him second best, or if you're giving him the best that you have. Because God knew that Israel was giving him sick, and lame, and maimed, and scarred sacrifices. And you know what he told them? I don't accept them. I'm not going to accept them. They're second best. I'm a God that's worthy of better than second best. And folks, he's worthy of it in our lives. And Christian culture needs to see that.
It's my firm belief that God answers today's churches in the same way he answers those priests. They can worship God in their way if they'd like to, but God is not listening. God is not regarding. God does not want second place in our lives. God does not want second place in our worship. More than that, God deserves better than second place in our lives and in our worship. If we would clear our schedules so that we could meet with our boss or with our governor or with our president or with the CEO of a large company, why can we not clear our schedules to meet with the God of the universe in corporate worship? If we can clear our schedules to watch that movie, though, yeah, there might be other things that could get done, why can we not clear our schedules to make sure that we have time with our family around the word of God every day. I think it's the same reason why Israel brought their sick and their lame and their maimed sacrifices. It's because we don't believe and trust God as we ought. We don't fear him as we ought. And so we offer polluted sacrifices upon the altar. But Legacy Baptist Church, it doesn't have to be this way. Nor am I accusing anyone in particular. We can obey God's word. We can give him our very best. We can give him the priority that's due to his name. We can give him the time that it's worthy of. This is within our power to do. And as the Holy Spirit convicts your hearts of areas in your life where you are giving God second best, I encourage you. Bump it up. If God's not convicting you, then God's not convicting you. But if the Holy Spirit is convicting your heart, find those areas and give God the best. Give God the best. Of your time, of your money, of your effort, of your abilities, of yourselves. Give God the best. Because God hates second place worship. Second in verse 10, we see secondly, God hates ulterior motives in worship. God hates ulterior motives with worship. Look at verse 10. Who is there even among you that would shut the doors for naught? Neither do you kindle fire on mine altar for naught. I have no pleasure in you, saith the Lord of hosts. Neither will I accept an offering at your hand. God now questions the people. Who among all the priests that are here, that are listening under my voice, would shut the doors, implicitly the doors of the temple there, for naught? Or who would kindle a fire upon his altar for naught? In other words, God condemns the people not only for their second place worship, but also for their ulterior motives and their self-proclaimed, self-pleasing worship. God is literally implying here that there was not one priest upon the temple mount who would take the time out of their day to kindle a fire upon the altar or to open the doors for the people to worship if they were not obligated as a part of their paid position to do so. If they were not receiving of the goods of the people, if they had not been obligated by their position to open those doors and to kindle the fire on the altar, the fire would never be lit. The altar would never be used. If worship were only between their hearts and God, there would be no worship. That's what God was telling them. To this form of false worship, God states two clear condemnations. First, I have no pleasure in you. Second, I will not accept an offering at your hand. It is not worship if we are compelled into action by 
obligation alone. Worship only happens and will only be accepted when God's worth is being displayed from our hearts to our actions, not simply in our actions. Now the rest might still be considered a form of worship, but is it Jehovah worship, worship of the true and living God? No. As we come back to a Christian culture that we live in, I ask some questions. How small would church be and how few would be there if worship was not compelled by flashy music, by children's entertainment, by comfort, and by accessibility? How many people would go to church even if the pews were hard instead of soft chairs simply because they wanted to be where God was worshipped in spirit and in truth? How many people would stick around if pastors quit opening the joke books and began opening their Bibles? If pastors quit making social commentary and started making commentary on hearts, on lives, on truths of God's word, how few pastors would there be if the calling didn't involve a paycheck and honor in the eyes of men? This condemnation in Malachi is specifically to the priests, though it extends to the people. And I believe that there are specific condemnations upon spiritual leaders found in this passage. Leaders that are so busy with other things that they don't prioritize their duty to teach the word of God. Leaders that are so busy with programs and with social thoughts and social desires and building churches that they forget that their people need to hear the counsel of God. And I don't want to give a cop-out to the pastors this morning just because I'm focused upon a group of lay, lay people. The accountability of the men that stand behind the pulpit every week is great. I will stand before God one day and answer for myself and for my family as a husband and as a father, but also for how I led this body. It is a great responsibility. And every other pastor who claims to be a representative of God and his word will stand before God and do the same. What a condemnation upon a Christian culture where pastors are willing to compromise the truth so much for political correctness, for numbers, for monetary gain. It's a condemnation upon the, the men who call themselves men of God. It's a condemnation upon the pastors of this land. And God does not take it lying down. God's righteousness will be vindicated. And that's what we see as we, find, as we finish here. Third point. God's name will be vindicated in spite of false worship. Verses 11 and 14. God says in verse 11. Well, we'll get there in a moment. In the midst of these verses, God gives two statements of fact. The first fact is found in verse 11. Now let's read it. From the rising of the sun even unto the going down of the same, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. And in every place incense shall be offered unto my name and a pure offering. For my name shall be great among the heathen, saith the Lord of hosts. God says, just as sure as the sun rises every morning and just as sure as the sun sets every evening, which is pretty sure, right? I mean, I, I, I don't know of too many mornings where I've woken up and, oh, 
the sun just didn't rise this morning. Maybe if you're up in the high north or the low south points of our planet, but that's of course not the perspective which God is giving here. The sun rises in the morning. The sun sets in the evening. This happens every day. It's really amazing. God says, in the same manner, the same faithfulness with which the sun rises and the sun sets, you can write it down, you can, you can etch it in stone, my name will be praised. I will receive praise. Regardless of my willingness, regardless of your willingness or Christian culture's willingness to glorify God in the world through proper worship, God says his name will be praised. In every place his name will be lifted up and proper worship shall be raised. And as we've mentioned a couple of times now throughout the weeks, the question is, are we going to be on the side of giving God the worship? Is God going to be vindicated through us or in spite of us? Is God going to be, is God's glory, God's goodness, God's love, God's name going to be vindicated through our worship or in spite of our worship? The prophecy is given here in Malachi, Malachi is twofold. The first element of this prophecy is fulfilled in the church, which calls people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation to be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ and to worship Him in spirit and in truth. So in that manner, the, the remnant, the true church, will always be giving glory to God. The second element of this prophecy, however, is the millennial kingdom. In which Jesus Christ will rule with a rod of iron. Worship will be perfected and God's name will be glorified to its fullest. We know that because we also see uh, the expectation of the Levitical offerings found within this passage. Now the first fact then is that from the rising of the sun to the setting of the same. God's name will be praised. God's glory will be vindicated. God will receive proper worship. If not through Israel then through another people. Second fact is found in verse 14. Look at it with me as we read. But cursed be the deceiver which hath in his flock a male and voweth and sacrificeth unto the Lord a corrupt thing. For I am a great king, saith the Lord of hosts, and my name is dreadful among the heathen. God says the man who brings God less than the best that he has and attempts to pass it off as his best is cursed cursed in the eyes of God. Why? Why is the deceiver cursed? God says, because I am a great king and my name will be feared. Do we see the principles this morning? Can we draw from God's rebuke to Malachi, uh, through Malachi to the people of Israel an understanding that God does not accept secondhand worship, false worship, improperly motivated worship. Can we see how that should frame the way we live our entire lives? When we say that we are living our lives to the praise and the glory of God, when we study as we did in Ephesians that we are supposed to be a body of believers fitly framed together unto one body, unto unity in the faith, that throughout all the ages the principalities and powers might know the manifold glory of God through the church. Do we see? Do we not see? Can we recognize that it's the entire point of God leaving us on this earth as believers to bring others to the truth, to glorify His name, to magnify the person of God in this world? 
Do we not see then that inherently, as believers, our lives are to be frameworked around the absolute best that we can give to God? True worship. As we make application, we see that there really are only two directions to go with this. God says many times in Scripture that we are either for Him or against Him. When we worship corporately here, when we go home, when we interact with our friends, when we interact with our co-workers, when we interact with other Christians, when we do all of these things, and we do them as proud and vocal believers, we're born-again believers, and we're going to let people know that. Either we are causing others to see God's worth as less than it is through our actions or we are magnifying God's worth and elevating Him through our actions. We are either causing men to fear God and love God and recognize His worth or we are causing them to scorn His worth. And when we offer God corrupt things, when we offer God our second best, we are offering Him polluted bread. We can rest assured God's name will be vindicated. And if it cannot be vindicated positively through our lives, perhaps it will be vindicated negatively through our lives. This should cause us, as God was preaching through Malachi, to have a holy fear. We know that God is a loving God. That's what established this entire prophecy last week. We all recognize the great things that God has done for us. We all know that God's been far more merciful and gracious to us than we could ever deserve. But God's love is not at the expense of His holiness. God's desire to be our Father, and as Jesus Christ expressed it, our friend, does not negate the reality that He is a great King. And His name will be feared among the heathen. Let's pray.